for a lot of people, including I think the band members and lots of fans, stuff happened when the band was playing really well sometimes that felt bigger than life. And you can you can say God showed up. You can say it was all just in my head, but it was amazing. You can say the gods showed up. You can say that the the Earth spirit manifested. Like I'm cool with all of that. The, the focus is really just they get up there and they play, and something special and incredibly cool uh, happens. This is the official tapes. It's a Grateful Dead radio program where we get into the official releases from the Grateful Dead's vault. Hey there, I'm Corey and the official tapes airs on about 80 radio stations around the globe. And every so often we get fortunate to catch up with somebody to discuss a topic about the Grateful Dead. And uh, not only do we feature that interview on the radio, but then we take it and then we highlight it here. This is Michael Kaler, and the book is called Get Shown the Light, Improvisation and Transcendence in the Music of the Grateful Dead. We're going to touch on a few topics that is uh, discussed in the book, Get Shown the Light. That's going to be a little bit later, but first, how about a background on Michael Kaler? I teach at the uh, University of Toronto, and I teach specifically at one of our suburban campuses, uh, which is Mississauga, which nobody can pronounce, and that's okay. Yeah, so I teach there. My department is called the Institute for the Study of University Pedagogy. So what I teach at U of T is critical thinking skills, academic writing skills. I research academic reading and writing, that kind of thing. Um, but my background, I did a bunch of work in religious studies focusing on early Christianity. So Gnosticism, a sort of trend within early Christianity of like first 400 years. And then after that, I switched to doing sort of religion and popular music, which is why I started focusing on the dead. I argue in the book, like in the mid 60s, rock music doesn't have its own sort of improvisational identity like the you know the blues totally does jazz totally does classical music is even getting into the sum but when the dead formed in 65 it's really the start of rock bands going huh we want to stretch out and improvise but we're not jazz bands we're not blues bands we're rock bands and so so what does that mean like how do, how do we do this as a rock band and so the book on a musical level, the book is looking at the Dead's earliest work and sort of going, okay, this is how they developed a strategy for improvising that was appropriate in a rock sort of context. Like, improvisation isn't just random creation of music, right? Like, improvisation is pretty universal, but every different musical tradition will have different rules about what's acceptable or what's doable or how you improvise in that tradition. So that one of the examples I use in the book is I, I contrast, like, B.B. King and, like, Ravi Shankar or somebody coming out of a, a Indian classical context. And I would say that B.B. King is absolutely an improviser, Ravi Shankar, absolutely an improviser, but if B.B. King sat in on Ravi Shankar's gig, it probably wouldn't go well because B.B. King has been trained to work in a blues context, which has different expectations, different rules, different standards than an Indian classical music context.
1965 if if you were thinking about i want to be in a popular band i want to make some money i want to make this my the way i go about living it was probably logical it would have made more sense to put on suits and play three minute beatles type songs right so so the question is why why do they want to get into improvisation and i argue in the book that it's because they had weird spiritual or religious experiences while playing improvised music and so they felt yeah we want to get more of these we want to share them with an audience like we want to be able to generate to not generate these but we want to be able to create situations where these could occur and they felt it was through playing improvisationally that, that they could do that One issue of a lot of the previous research in terms of how they do this stuff is that folks tend to feel like the dead really got going in like 1968. You know, so when you read people talking about peak dead or prime dead or when the X factor shows up or whatever language they use, like typically folks are not even talking about what's happening in 1966 or 1967. And I sympathize with that, right? Like as, as a deadhead, like, my two favorite years would probably be 69 and 72. I really did enjoy listening to the early stuff for this research, but it was not stuff that I'd listened to a lot because I just had that headspace of like, no, it's it's late 1968 and then following that they're really the dead. One of the things I wanted to do with, with the book and one of the holes that it was filling in the research, I think was saying, hey, if they were getting that amazing in late 68, what led up to that? You don't suddenly just show up on the scene and you're amazing. Like you have to work on it to become amazing. And so I feel like it's it's important. You know, we only have one life to live, right? So if we have a choice between an amazing show from 1969 and a really hissy show from 1966, probably we're going to go for the 69 show, which makes sense. But the 66 show is important because that's when they're developing the approach that enables them to, to function in this improvisational way, which then blooms or sort of blossoms into, into what you get in the late 60s and, and into the 70s. I feel like with the pursuit of the transcendent spiritual experience, I mean, there's lots of testimony from the dead members of the importance of like, particularly the acid tests in their early experience where they're, they're playing, they don't necessarily know what the hell they're doing because they're extremely stoned and so is everybody else in the room, but they're feeling something utterly cool happening that seems to involve some sort of synchronistic like link up of everybody in the room, you know, so that you know, you're thinking a thought and then somebody's voicing that thought over in the other side of the room. Like there seems to be some some sort of a telepathic link up that, the, that they're generating along with just weird stuff happening. Like it's it feels like if you read their accounts, they seem to be feeling that there was just weird, magical, extremely important stuff happening at these events. Garcia will say things like the acid tests were the were the basis for our, our entire trip. And so I, I feel like this stuff happened when they played. And so they're like, 
damn, I want more of this stuff to happen. Like, I feel like this is what, this is what we're doing. We're not just going for the money. We're not just going for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We, we want to create these experiences for ourselves and for our listeners. And so they're going, okay, these things seem to happen when we're playing freely. Like when we're, we're sort of opening ourselves up to sort of a, spontaneous improvisational sort of approach is is when the sort the stuff tends to happen and again i think as as a deadhead i i agree with that right like there's magic for me comes in listening to a dark star or playing in the band or the other one or or eyes of the world or something like that it doesn't it doesn't come in as much in the in the the more tightly scripted songs so i feel like they were going okay we do this improvisational stuff and sometimes cool stuff happens we want to keep doing this improvisational stuff. So let's figure out how we can function as a touring rock band and still do this improvisational stuff and sort of still set up the environment where this stuff could happen. There's a tendency with, you know, with drugs to go two ways, right? Like there's lots of people who are into psychedelic drugs who are just, who regard them as perfect generators of religious experience which i don't think they are and there's people who are not interested in in drugs who would regard any use of drugs as automatically ruling out the possibility that something was a religious experience and i I don't really agree with that either so i'm trying to in the book i'm trying to say first of all i'm just dealing with what, what folks tell me i'm not trying to get into their brains and see what what actually went on but also I try to put drugs a bit more into a broader perspective. Like I think there's a a tradition within most religions of doing extreme things to your body in the hopes of getting some sort of enlightenment. So one of the examples I use in the book is Jesus goes off into the desert and starves himself for 40 days. That's pretty extreme. Like if you, if you don't, eat for a good long time, you're going to go into some weird headspaces. You can imagine, I don't know, somebody, you know, a nun in the the Middle Ages, you know, kneeling in her cell and spending 12 hours a day praying. That's an extreme experience that's going to cause some effects. If you think of like a vision quest from a from a sort of indigenous context, these again are, are you know, when you're going off from the tribe and you're on your own and it's cold and you have to, you know, kill your own meat and eat it like these are tough experiences as well so i try to put drugs drug use into the context of doing weird things to our bodies in the hopes that some sort of religious experience will happen like i i just don't want to get into that whole oh yeah lsd's magic and you take it and right away you've got a religious experience because i know that's not always the case but i also don't want to get into that headspace of like oh sure it sounds like you had an experience but because you were high i'm not gonna i'm just gonna completely discount it like i think both of those are are extremes my perspective in the book is like I'm not judging anybody else's spirituality, right? So, so I'm trying to a little bit sidestep that. And just go like if you, if you tell me that you've had a profound spiritual experience, and I look at you and I go, yeah, he's changed his whole life on the basis of this, and it seems to he seems to be a different person. That's as far as I go. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to go. Oh well, you said you had it after you'd run 15 miles and then swum, you know, two, two kilometers. And so I'm like, oh, well, obviously that was a hallucination because his body was exhausted. Or if you tell me I, you did a bunch of shrooms and you had this experience, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going into that. My perspective is more, 
overall is more if folks say, I feel like this happened. And if it seems like it did have an effect on them, then I'm like, okay, at least for them, as far as I can tell it, it was legit. So that's, that's my main point. I presented on the Grateful Dead for um, the Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus, which is a thing run by a guy called Nick Merriweather that he gathers folks who are scholars who are interested in the Grateful Dead and to like at a conference and we get papers. And so I was giving my paper and I referred to the Grateful Dead as a religious movement. or so I forget my exact words, but I use the religious word in there. And people just, they're, they're, they got cold. They were not appreciating this. And uh, the feedback I got after my presentation was, no, the, the Grateful Dead are not religious. They're spiritual. Like it was really important for, the, for those folks to make that distinction. So religious was, was bad and, and spiritual was good from their perspective. And so to a degree that's arbitrary, right? Like you can call something religious or you can call it spiritual, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I feel like to a degree... It does make sense. Like some of these, the associations, typically when we talk about things as being spiritual versus religious, by spiritual we mean things that are like less organized. There's less sort of dogma. There's less pre-existing structure. People are f floating back and forth, you know, among them more. Like there's maybe less of a life lifestyle commitment to them. Like there's spiritual typically means stuff that's more open to an individual interpretation and looser and less conflicting, constraining and less institutionalized. Like there's all these associations. And I started thinking about it and I was like, okay, you know, with the dead, like <laughs> it's not that free and open. You know, the dead are like, I, as I try to point out in the book, like the dead have, they have an iconography. For instance, like there's there's these you dance whether it's dancing bears or the steelies or or whatever, like they have definite symbols that are created to express aspects of the spiritual or religious movement. They have sacred texts, primarily the hunter, like some of the Barlow songs, but especially the hunter tunes where he wrote lyrics to, like, you know, every deadhead in the world knows every one of those lyrics and can quote them, you know, or put them on a bumper sticker or whatever. Like there's, there's, there's sacred texts. While the Grateful Dead were around as a band, there was a definite ritual structure involving everything from like getting through Shakedown Street, you know, into the concert, the, the structure of the concert with the two sets, with the drums in space, and then you've got your ballad and then Bobby's going to do Sugar Magnolia or something like, you, you know, there's, there's a definite structure to the religion or religious movement there's clothing you know like like we don't all dress in tie-dyes but i mean for sure less so nowadays but back in the day you saw a tie-dye that that person was a deadhead or smelled patchouli or something like that so there's i just felt like they were all and there's also just these ethical ideas about deadheads being there's ways to be a good deadhead you know like like be enthusiastic, be sort of joyful, don't be judgmental, don't get on other people's trips, but when, when you have to, to stop people from hurting themselves, step in, like all these sort of ethical obligations, there was a sense of community. You had this feeling that you could trust 
your fellow deadheads, which in some cases was not a good idea, but in most cases it was. Like, I just felt like there was way too much organized structure to the Grateful Dead thing for it to really fit in the spiritual category. It's religious, you know, it's, it's, it's more, it's more organized and more structured and more, there are more expectations with regard to it than for me, than would fit into calling it a spiritual movement. When we're talking about transcendence type stuff, like I don't want to invalidate anybody else's transcendence. You know what I mean? Like I've got my own ideas about what I felt listening to the dead and maybe they're comparable to your ideas or maybe they're exactly the opposite. And that's either way is fine, you know? So what I try to do in the book, and this is also so that the book can be readable by folks who are not deadheads, is I'm trying to write about things not from the perspective of talking about like experiences I've had or whatever, but more from the perspective of saying, hey, people think there's really significant happening here. And so I, I try not to define it too much. Like I think there's lots of, there's there's been lots of good discussions of what people get out of the dead spiritually. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of it in the, in the research literature uh, over the past 20 or 30 years. I kind of don't want to go there, A, because it's been done, B, because I don't want to shut down anybody else's experiences if they don't look like the model that I'm constructing. Like, I guess what I want to do more is just say there is evidence of folks, including band members, having extremely powerful experiences with the music. So the framework is a is a phrase I a term I used when I was listening to the early stuff. Like it was clear that they they weren't just randomly improvising; that they had come up, they had some ground rules for how they how they improvise. I don't know if these were ever consciously laid down by the Grateful Dead members. Like I defined them sort of in the book, but like my definition is based on what I heard. I have no idea if they ever sat down and said, we got to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but I do, f if you listen to enough of the early recordings, you find that the improvisation is not just coming out from out of nowhere. Like it's, it follows certain guidelines that seem to be repeated. And those guidelines are what I call sort of the framework. There are a few quotes from Garcia where he does say like, you know, we're not just getting up and play and just doing whatever we feel like we've got a, he does use the word framework at one point to say, we've got a framework for how we, how we do our improvisations, but he, he doesn't lay out uh, any list of, of, you know, guidelines or anything like I do. So I have no idea if what I've created matches what they were, what they were consciously thinking. But, but yeah, for me, the framework is basically looking at, okay, how do they take rock from being two and a half to three minute long, you know, pop songs into something where, where people can jam. And what it seems to me, one of the things that they do is basically they, they, in terms of where in the song they do it, they tend to start doing it where there would be a fade out in a song. So like if you were listening to a single and it's fading out, they basically, they take those parts and stretch them way, way the heck out. 
they have a certain corpus of songs where they do do improvisation and, and a certain corpus of songs where they don't do it. They tend, even within the improvisations, they tend to be in specific sort of fields or specific areas for like 15 to 45 seconds, typically not longer or shorter. So they'll, what'll typically happen is they'll be, they'll be jamming. And then one of the members will sort of indicate, Hey, I'm going to change the jam up by doing this little thing, you know, or, or suggesting this other feel or whatever. And then other members will join in and they'll sort of create a new, I don't know what sonic environment that they can play in. And then they'll play in that for another, you know, 15 to 45 seconds. And then somebody will say, Hey, we could straighten out the beat or we could come down here or, Hey, I want to make this more in G minor or, you know, something like that. And they'll, and they'll go off into that. So it's, it's a, it's not, a discontinuous improvisation. It's not like, bam, you're here, or bam, you're there. It's more this flow where they're sort of moving into a new space, sitting in the new space for 20, 30 seconds, and then moving into a new space. So they're sort of, I think it's it makes it smoother and more, more likely that the audience is going to keep up with them, you know, and be able to keep dancing as they're doing this stuff. They'll typically end with a return to the main riff or the the chorus or whatever of the song so there's all these aspects of it that i discuss in the book that that are coming out of me listening to a whole bunch of stuff from 66 and 67 and just going huh how are they how are they doing this like how are they how are they figuring out when they want to improvise magical moments where they're playing and it's just like whoa this is bigger bigger than life like this is this is something extremely powerful sort of and important i would hope that the book would do two things like number one is it would talk about how the grateful dead developed an improvisational practice that could work as a rock band the other part would be it also looks at why they felt obliged to become an improvising rock band in the first place. So why do they want to do this, you know? 